Oscar Wilde famously said, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. And if you look at the lives of the saints, this is the story. And I think of our patron here, St. Augustine. St. Augustine was raised by a saint, St. Monica, but she in her own life struggled with addiction. Uh, Augustine tells us in, the, in his confessions that she used to go to the wine cellar and drink when she was a young girl and substance abuse with alcohol. And she raised a son that she wanted to be a Christian and a man of God, but it didn't, he didn't turn out that way at the beginning. He was, himself was addicted to sex. But their story, that's not the end of their story. God's mercy, God's love, God's hope was given to them. And we know them as St. Augustine and St. Monica. And so they're a wonderful story of addiction and recovery because of God's mercy. Tonight, we're going to be talking about a story about addiction, recovery, and hope. Hello, welcome to the Augustine Institute show with Dr. Tim Gray. I'm Ben Akers filling in for him tonight. And tonight we're gonna to talk about a story about addiction and recovery and hope. My special guest tonight is the founder and CEO of Wall Street Productions. He's also the uh, host of a, of a podcast, a Bottom Line Podcast. He's also the author of a book called The Big Hustle, a Boston Street Kids story of addiction and redemption. Please join me in welcoming Jim Wahlberg. Thanks for Thank you. Me, Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Yeah. It's really great to be here. Well, I, I really enjoyed your book, The, the Big Hustle. If uh, someone's at home. You're and the one. Was that? I'm You're the, the one, one who enjoyed, enjoyed it. it. I, yes. the one, I, I really did. I, I never heard of it before. I read it last night and today. And it was a page turner, as Jim Caviezel, as Ford says. This is a, like, a, like a thriller. Right. Um, my, I want to get into your story about how it's a story of addiction to recovery and God's hope and mercy and come God finding you mm. in your life. Um, but I want to first, the first question I want to ask is, what made you want to write this book? Hmm, that's, that's an interesting question. I think I kind of always thought that I would maybe someday write a book. Um, in fact, there was talk with uh, secular publishers about doing that. Um, but I never really felt comfortable with that. I, I, I did get to feel comfortable when I decided to do it with a faith-based publisher. Right. I thought that my story is a story of redemption. It's a story of faith. It's a story of God's love and mercy. And I'm not sure how good that's going to go with a secular publisher. Sure. Right. So I think I found the right people and uh, and we we embarked on this journey together. And uh, we're pretty happy with the way things turned out, I think. Yeah, our Sunday visitor is a wonderful apostolate. Sure. Yeah. They're a good partner and friends of the Augustine Institute. And so uh, when I was reading this, if you had to um, sell this to Hollywood, who do you think would play you in the story? <laughs> well, I think... I, no. <laughs> One of well, your brothers. <laughs> here's the thing is that, you know, it's a, a lot of this story is, is just a lost little boy, right? So it, it would have to be a number of people, right, from different age yeah. groups and different age brackets. Um, we've actually talked about turning this into a film. Um, so I, I really don't know. I don't know. I think maybe it would be we would have to go out and, and discover a new talent for this. Uh, for the, I didn't know your story until I read your book, and right. it, was, it was a gripping, as I mentioned. Uh, what's, how, how would you start your story? Where does your story start? 
Well, I think my story starts in a, in a three-bedroom apartment in Dorchester, Massachusetts, one of nine children, um, starved for attention, you know, uh, lost, not really feeling like uh, that I was being seen or heard, you know. There was a lot going on. There was a lot of craziness, and there was a lot of, my parents were very busy just trying to put food on the table. Um, and so I was sort of searching for attention and I was looking for it in all the wrong places, you know. Um, I was, I think, eight or nine years old, I had my first drink on that little dead-end street in that three-bedroom apartment, hanging out with some older kids in the neighborhood. And I wasn't so much after the alcohol as much as I was after their acceptance and their attention, right? And I got that. So I had a drink or a couple of drinks, Nothing really happened. I didn't have any real physical reaction. I wasn't really drunk or anything, but I think I was drunk on their paying attention to me and me sort of, I mattered to somebody. I was able to be funny. I was whatever it was. Um, and so I became really aware of that more than anything else, I think. Is that a common story? I know you work with uh, opioid addiction and, and families that have struggled mm -hmm. with that. Is that a common s story about someone being starved for attention and they try to mm. I distract think, themselves? So I think for me, in, in the way I look at addiction in general, right, I think there's, there are different paths to addiction. I think that my path was more of a it, sort of a, a, a traditional path to addiction, if, if that means something. I think, you know, it started out, you know, with a drink, a cigarette, uh, and it progressed on to much more dangerous drugs. Um, and the opioid epidemic is something different um, because a lot of these young people are starting with the most dangerous drugs known to men. And a lot of these young people started with a prescription from a doctor, right? And these young people were on the fast track for success. They never exhibited any sort of addictive nature. They never really got in trouble. They were, it wasn't that kind of a journey for them. It was a trusted person in the community with a white jacket and a stethoscope and an education and a diploma handed them a little piece of paper and said, I'll take the pain away for you, right? And, um, and they gave them drugs that they claim that less than 1% of the people who took them became addicted, but the truth of the matter is, is like 90% of the people I took them became addicted. Oh, that's terrible. With your story of addiction, it led, seems quickly to juvenile yeah. delinquency, to prison even. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah, not sure I, that's not what your parents had hoped for you. Yeah, I mean, so I started out, I was, from that, from as far back as I can remember, I was always into something. From kindergarten was the first time I played hooky in school. Um, and so, you know, I made it to the seventh grade. And from kindergarten, or from the first grade to the seventh grade, I went to seven different schools. I was, you know, I was a product of, um, the integration of the Boston public school system. And so instead of going to the school that was around the corner from my house, I got put on a bus and sent to a school in somebody else's neighborhood. And they got put on a bus and sent to the school next to my house. And so um, every year I went to a different school. So every year I had to readjust every year. And so I sought out the kids that were 
uh, a little edgy. Mm -hmm. I sought out, I sought out trouble. I sought, I had to find attention. I had to reestablish myself every year. Um, and so, you know, I started drinking and smoking and, and, and doing different kinds of drugs, at least recreationally in the beginning, probably, you know, by the time I was 11, I think, uh, I went to the seventh grade, I completed the seventh grade, I went to the Martin Luther King School in Dorchester, Massachusetts, and I remember at the end of the year, the principal saying to me, you know, uh, have a great summer, uh, please let your parents know that we probably don't want you to come back here next year, you'll go somewhere else, um, because I was, I was trouble. So the last day of school was a Friday. I went home and I started to make plans for my first night of the summer, and, uh, and I remember we were getting ready to go out. Dinner was five o'clock every night in my house. And so we ate dinner very quickly and I was, couldn't wait to get out the door because I knew all my friends, other 12-year-old kids, were gonna, we were gonna drink beer, we were gonna smoke cigarettes, we were gonna do things that we were not supposed to do, right. and we were gonna act like we were older and more mature than we were. And um, I remember as I was going out the door, my father reminded me, now don't forget, you be in this house by the time those street lights come on or don't come home, hmm. right? Now, that sounds harsh, but you gotta remember, there was 12 years of history before that day right. that I had already run away from home and been in trouble and things like that. And I went out that Friday night and I remember those street lights coming on and I remember making that decision that I couldn't, it was too important for me to be right here with, with these friends. people yeah. with that drink in my hand than it was for me to go home right, and be safe in my own bed. And I didn't go home, that was June, you know, whatever, 20th, uh, school ends around that time in Boston. I didn't go home till August. Wow. Yeah, I didn't go home till August. And by that time, it was, my dad was beyond going out looking for me. And I was never more than a mile, a quarter of a mile, half a mile from my house, right down on the corner. And you know, some nights I would stay with friends, and then some nights I would have nowhere to go. You know, and I would sleep outside, and I would, in my my daily shower, if you will, would be at the Quincy Quarries. We would go swimming, and I'd jump in the water, and that's how I would Get wash. wash up. Yeah. Well, if you're watching, uh, and we'll have a question for Jim Wahlberg about his story and uh, about addiction, recovery, um, and uh, I invite you to text in or call at 720, it's 660. And uh, the last zero uh, one hundred, so seven two zero six five zero zero one hundred. You can also comment on the formed um, text line uh, underneath as well, uh, Jim. So that's that was your your summer of your twelfth year of life, uh, and then you end up in prison. Right. So I get addicted. I, I mean, I get uh, I get committed to the Department of Youth Services. So that means that the state is now making the decisions about my life. My parents were no longer making the decisions. And to be honest with you, their hands were up in the air. They were okay with that because I was completely yeah. out of control. And you know, my, my dad comes from a generation, he had a job when he was 12 years old. Right. He was helping to provide for a family at 12. So he didn't look at me as a little kid, you know? Um, and so the state was making the decisions. And you know, it was a series of, I would get in trouble, I would get locked up, and instead of, after a period of time of being locked up, they wouldn't send me home, they would send me to foster care or to a group home. And so, you know, 
getting sent to, to live in somebody else's home, right? There were many times that, you know, somebody would come and pick me up at one of these lock facilities and, you know, usually like a case manager or a counselor that I would know already, and they would drive me to some suburban neighborhood and drop me off at some person's house, and I would be back in Boston before they were, and they had a car, you know, <laughs> because I was just so right. drawn to the street and so drawn to, I always felt like I was missing something, like something was going on, you know, and, and having had the experience of, you know, sleeping outside and living outside in, in you know, in, in the cold, I'm from Boston, and being home and being safe in my house, and then that, that thought would come to me, that obsession would come to me, that like I was missing something. So it wasn't, the obsession wasn't to run out and use drugs and alcohol, it was something's going on and I'm missing it, right? right? That attention that I was seeking all the time. And so I would climb out the window of my house and run down to the corner and many times there was nobody there. And now I couldn't get back in the house, right? right? So it was, I would consume alcohol to sort of soothe that pain and that loneliness and the shame of, you know, living in the streets. Right. I know that uh, millennials today will talk about FOMO, fear of missing out. Yeah. Like it, you know, it feels like something's going on and I've not been invited yeah. or I want to be invited. I want to be part sure. of it and not miss anything. Sure. That's a real thing. And it was, you know, it was, I was, uh, what was the song? I was looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah. I was looking for, for attention in all the wrong places. And, you know, my life became a series of, um, I was either getting in trouble because I was under the influence doing things I wasn't supposed to do, or I would get in trouble because I was trying to get the money to get under the influence. And so, you know, I was in juvenile detention. I, now, you know, life is, happens like this, yeah. right? Next thing you know, I'm, I'm 17 years old. And in, in Massachusetts, 17, you are an adult in, as far as the criminal justice system is concerned. Not, you know, not, you can't, go to the liquor store and buy drinks, Uncle, yeah. but you can go to state prison. Yeah. And I committed crimes that would bring me to state prison at 17 years old. And things that I barely remember, you know, um, and I ended up 17 years old, I got a three to five year prison sentence in, in Walpole State Prison, which is, a, it's a maximum security state prison. I shouldn't have been in that sort of setting the entire time. I should have went and did my time and behaved myself, but you know, that need for attention and that need for acceptance consumed me even in prison. And so I was in prison and I should have been out in two years, but because of that need for that attention, I turned that into five years. And I did five years and, and it came time for me to get out and I was essentially I was a crazy person at that point, right? I only understood, I understood prison. I didn't understand right. the world anymore because it had passed me by. And I get out and the first thing I did was pick up a drink yeah. because I needed something to soothe that fear that I was consumed in. And, um, you know, I was out six months. And for that six months, I consumed as much alcohol and as much drugs as I could get in my body. And then six months, almost to the day later, I found myself in a police station covered with blood and had no idea why I was there. And I come to find out that I had robbed a Boston police officer's house. And he came home in the middle of the night while I was in his house 
And that blood that was all over me was my blood. And, um, and I, was, I was back in prison. You know, there was a guy who I was in prison with who was a young guy who got caught up and ended up, got, he got like 40 years. And uh, he was the last person I saw on the way out from doing five years. And he was the first person I saw when I came back. He was so angry. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I did, I was motivated when I came back. I didn't want to do nine years. That was my motivation, right? Because if I did nine years, I would be over 30 when I got out. And that's prehistoric, right? right. When you're yep. a kid, that's prehistoric. So I started to do things to try to create an illusion that I was becoming rehabilitated. I started going to self-help groups. I started going to 12-step groups. I started going to therapy, all to create an illusion. It was completely, I was running a game. I just wanted to get out. That and, sounds funny, because you, you call the book The Big Hustle. Yeah, and I was, and, that and was you were awesome. a hustler going in, and you're still trying to hustle yeah, in prison. and I'm in, and I'm hustling, and, and the priest, Father Jim Freitas at MCI Concord, took notice of the fact that I was doing all these things. And I'm not sure he looked at me like I was, I think he probably, he was a priest. He probably yeah. thought, hey, this kid's trying to get his life together. And so he approaches me and offers me a job as the custodian in, uh, in the chapel. And I instantly think, because this is the way my mind worked, oh, this guy smokes cigarettes. <laughs> he's got coffee, he's got a phone in there, yeah. he's got, a quiet place to just sit because there are no quiet places in prison to just sit and to just be alone and be in privacy. Are you Catholic? Are you practicing Catholic at this time? I'm not a practicing Catholic so at you're this baptized time. I am. I am. I, am yeah. I, I was baptized. I had my first Holy Communion. I had never made my confirmation. Okay. And I grew up. Um, I grew up in a tradition, not in a faith. Sure. Right. I grew up and this is what we do. This is what the neighbors do. You're going to put that little white suit on. You're going to go to make your your first Holy Communion. We're going to have a party. Yep. And but no talk of a loving God, no talk of Jesus dying for me. No, none of that. Right. And so I would go to church and I, and I just felt like I felt everywhere else, like I didn't belong and that I wasn't good enough and that everybody else there thought they were better than me. Jim, one of the things that happens in prison, because you're trying to hustle the priest yeah. to maybe get cigarettes, a quiet yeah. place, a phone call, is you end up getting hustled by him. He's the Can hustler. you tell that story? Yeah. He's the hustler. I mean, it wasn't right away. Probably after the first week, he says to me, um, hey, listen, you know, I need the chapel cleaned for Sunday. So why don't you come to the vigil mass on Saturday, then you can clean afterwards because it's too complicated getting you out. Like there's, that's a time when they let people out. So why don't you do that? So I said, okay. And I, and I remember I, was, I would sit in the pew and I would sit next to a guy who was a very dangerous criminal. He was a very, very devout Catholic guy. Hmm. But he was a very dangerous guy. He was a bank robber. He's a serious guy. And, um, and I remember sitting next to him and I didn't know any of the prayers. I didn't know any of the responses. I just watched him, you know, and I just kind of learned from him. And, uh, but, you know, Father Freitas, he was the hustler, right? So his goal was simple. His goal was to get me to the foot of the cross. He was, he was trying to bring me back in the fold, right? And to maybe expose me to this loving, yeah. merciful God that is the God that we believe in, right? That our faith is, is grounded in. And uh, I remember he, 
he said to me after a couple of weeks of working, he said, hey, we have a very special guest coming next week. And I was like, really, Father, who's that? And he said, Mother Teresa is coming to this prison. And I said, that's amazing, Father. <laughs> who's Mother Teresa? Because <laughs> the extent of my life was, where was my next drink and drug coming from? It was not, I probably didn't know who the President of the United States mm. was, to be honest, at that time in my life, right? And so, you know, a little, a week or two later, here she is. And I remember seeing her. I remember seeing her walking through the quad of this prison, and I remember she was surrounded by all of these important people. And she's just a short little woman that's coming, yeah. A little teeny thing, but yeah. I can't really tell from that far away. But as she gets closer, I see the governor, the warden, all these people in suits. And, and as they get closer and I get closer to them, I'm, I'm, I'm keenly aware of her. And I'm keenly aware of a few things. Her, her sweater looked like it was a thousand years old. And her pockets were full of money, cash. Which that people were just giving to her people, for her you know, work. That's yeah. what people did. Yeah. And because they knew what she would do with those dollars. She, she would, would use it well. She yeah. would choose it well. Yeah. And, um, and then I looked at her feet, you know, and I looked at those sandals and I was like, I mean, they also look like they're a thousand years old. And then uh, because I worked in the chapel, I was part of the procession for the mass. And the cardinal was there and there was lots of dignitaries there and they had set up the gymnasium for the mass and there was a stage. And I remember the cardinal had a big fancy chair and next to him he had another big fancy chair for Mother Teresa, but she humbly refused. Instead, she stayed there on the floor with the sisters from her order and I remembered looking over, and for the first time in my life, I, I saw true humility. Yeah. You know, and I'll be honest with you, looking at her face, I felt like I was looking at the face of God. I didn't know, like I just didn't, it was just, I knew I was in the presence of holiness, but I couldn't explain it to myself. Yeah. And then she got up and she spoke. And when she spoke, I honestly felt like she was speaking directly to me. What was her message? Her message was real simple, but they were words that I never heard before. That I was a child of God, that Jesus Christ died for me. Personally, specifically, he died for me. And that I was more than the crimes that I had committed. And that I was more than my prison number. I was a child of God. And I never heard anything like that. I never, I, I was completely blown away. And I remember just kind of floating through the rest of the day and she left and she visited other prisons in the state. And I remember running back to the chapel the next day to talk to Father Freitas and telling him that I needed to know more about this Jesus that she was talking about and this God that she was talking about because I had never heard about that no, God. No, no. Yeah. I heard about God's gonna get you, yeah. right? For the bad that you have done, yeah. God is gonna get you. And so literally that day I started the preparations to make my confirmation. That's beautiful. Yeah. I know in the story that you'll, you'll go through a process of learning more about Jesus, more about the faith, yep. getting confirmed. Yep. Um, and, but a question came in that I want to sure. think for our viewers at home. Don asks, what guidance is there for spouses of addicted individuals that don't believe there is a problem? Hmm. So the number one thing I want to say to anybody that is either, either love somebody who's addicted or, or is addicted, right? That nothing is too big for God. I can remember feeling that I wasn't worthy, right? I was going to the, these meetings, these 12-step groups, and I was thinking, this is amazing for them. 
but I'm not worthy of this, right? So I want to say that nothing's too big for God, right? Never, ever give up. Uh, and prayer is critical, right? But also the truth. The truth is critical. You know, we can't live in the darkness. We can't live in, in secrecy. And, and addiction is just that. Addiction is it's isolation, it's separation, it's brokenness, it's sin, it's, it's all these things, right? And recovery is the exact opposite. It's love, it's community, it's friendship, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's faith, it, it's all of those things. So telling the truth and to somebody you love is, is necessary, I think, right? And, uh, you know, it's a scary time, yeah. right? With so many people that have died from addiction, it's such a scary time. But we need to be bold. We need to be bold. We need to let people know how much we love them and that we know that God can restore them, right? And, I, you know, I don't want to be cheesy and recommend my book, but it is, it, is, it is a book that sort of takes you through that mercy and that love that God has for us, right? That I didn't, I certainly didn't think I was worthy of it. That is related to the next question that someone at Ryan asks. It, uh, did you, when you were first talking, it sounded like you, God was a distant God, the, the cosmic sure cop was. who's yeah. going to pull you over, give you a ticket, send you to hell. Um, what's your relationship now with Jesus and the church? Are you mm. Catholic? I am very Catholic. I'm, I'm uh, an active participant in my faith. Um, I prayed the rosary today with my brother Christophonic driving up the mountain in Denver. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Catholic, and I, I belong to a Catholic men in recovery group as well. Um, and we do that virtually, and we have people from all over the world, really, uh, join us. And it's just, you know, we claim Jesus Christ, right, as, 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 as the power that people talk about. You need a power greater than yourself. Right. There is no greater power yeah. for me than the power of Jesus Christ, right? And so, yeah, um, I, I, I rely on that completely. That's beautiful. So you, you say you claim Jesus Christ, but first and foremost, he claimed you. Amen. And that's exactly Amen. what. Amen. When I read your story, I get the sense of the, the good shepherd story from yeah. the, the scriptures where he leaves the 99 yep. that goes after the one. Mm. And I just saw, you know, all the darkness that you experienced in your life that you shared at the beginning of your life in prison in solitary confinement yep. for, for many years in, in the prison, that the Lord still was looking for you and he found you. And I'm really grateful for you sharing that. You know, I was, I, I once asked uh, in a moment of, of real emotion, I asked a priest, why, why, why me? Like all the people that I know that were there that day that Mother Teresa was there and all the people that I spent all these years in prison with that are still there or been in and out or dead or why me? And, and he said, why not you? You're a child of God, right? Um, and I don't know, man, I, I know that for me that I had almost like a white light experience that day with Mother Teresa, right? And I walked away from that. Over the course of those years, I came out of prison in the middle of a, the biggest scandal the church had ever faced in, Boston, in Ground yeah. Zero in Boston. Yeah. And I was being given permission that I didn't have to believe in the faith of my childhood or I, didn't, I could create my own conception of God, which for me is, is a dangerous thing for me, right? I won't speak for anybody else, but for me, that's a dangerous thing. And so 
I, after having that experience and, and having that, that sort of melting of my heart and falling in love with Jesus, I walked away from that. And I'll tell you, when you walk away from that, the feeling of doom comes back pretty quickly. So I was able to not use dr uh, the drink or not use drugs, and, and I was able to get married and have children and buy a home. And for all outward sake, I was a successful person, yeah. right? But I was lost and lonely again. I was sad and empty again, right? And I knew that there was only one thing that was going to fill that emptiness, right? And so I was at a, a jumping off point, and my wife had sort of a profound conversion or reversion, I prefer to call it. Uh, she went on a, a retreat and, and I mean, she got knocked to her knees and she came home and instead of doing what my wife would normally do, which is, you are going to church, <laughs> we are going to church and that's the way it's gonna be, she just was kinder and more gentle and it became attractive to me. Mm -hmm. And then she tried to get me finally to go on a retreat and I said, yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm good. I have my own, the God yeah. of my own understanding. Yeah. I'm all set. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm dying inside. And so she, uh, she, my daughter came to see me. She was 12 years old. And she said, my daughter Kyra, who's an amazing woman of God, came to me and said, um, Daddy, I want you to go on this retreat. I want you to be happy. I want you to know Jesus. And she literally ripped the mask right off my face. I thought I had them all fooled, that I was happy, that I was this great, you know, happy, wonderful guy who was helping all these people around me that were suffering from addiction and all this stuff. And the truth of the matter is, is that I was sad and lonely, right? And I was, and I was drifting further and further away. And, and I was a man that, you know, what kind of man drives their family to church yeah. and drops them off? That's where I was. I went from this amazing ex white light experience, seeing what I thought was the face of God, to dropping my family off in church and going home and watching football and coming back to pick them up. And uh, it was, it is one of those things that still, it hurts me, right? Yeah. But I know the devil is strong, man. Jim, thank you for your story. I, I want to leave that as a cliffhanger because yeah. we're out of time. Uh, but yours is a story of, you know, of being open to God's will and I see the Lord at different conversion moments of your mm. life. And that's the story of every Christian that really is honest and trying to follow Jesus. Is we have those, those mountaintop experiences, but we also have those tough yeah, valley sure. experiences. So thank you for your willingness to share the story and come on the show and, and meet with me. If you're interested in learning more and hearing the rest of the story, it, it is a great story. The Big Hustle by Jim Wahlberg, a Boston Street Kids story of addiction and redemption. Thank you for joining us. You can watch this show in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, eBooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org. You can watch this show in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press 
with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, e-books, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.